0: listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent
1: you. More is James Bond, 007, in Ian Fleming's Live and Let Die. My name's Bond. James Bond. Names is for tombstones, baby. Waste him, now. James Bond is back, and wherever he drops in, it can mean only one thing. Trouble! This is the Bond adventure with more excitement, more action more danger, and more. Much more. Roger Moore as James Bond 007.
2: 007
1: is on a worldwide manhunt. The body count is going up. Bond stops to visit. He leaves his mark. On everything. They'll kill you. They will kill us. Love well, is lesson number two togetherness.
0: Is that time before we leave?
2: For lesson number three? Absolutely.
1: where they might not lawfully be joined together. Because Bond is on the move. And if you miss this one, you'll miss the most exciting 007 adventure of them all.
2: report there's a six (laughs) what is it -it? scuba can't you see i'm broadcasting here pile up on the tri-level got you backed up all the way to the off-ramp so if you're traveling this morning try to give yourself an extra day or two folks (laughs) hang on folks i've just been handed this important bulletin Regularly scheduled program to bring you this special report like live as it happens. Hi this is Nick Mason from Pink Floyd and you're listening to nostalgic radio and cars.
0: Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'm your show host, Robert. Running computers your computers and Google Tantalk, and you can see us live here in the studio. Don't forget to check out our website, golfstreammotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you miss missed any of our past shows, don't forget to check out our archive page, Nostalgic Radio and cars.com Good evening, Bobby. How are you? No, I'm doing
1: good. Just
0: uh, keeping... Uh... Keeping the seat warm here. <laughs> keeping the seat warm. How about you, Tommy? Are you keeping your seat warm? Oh, my seat's warm. Is <laughs> Okay, you're behind the COVID-20. Sitting here all damn day. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. too warm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of these days we've got to fix this mic thing. This is uh, really starting to... Anyway, uh, we got a real exciting show for you this evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this is Rocktober, and as we promised, we're going to deliver. And we're going to have some, try to have, and we probably will have some pretty interesting uh, musical people, musical guests, musical related and maybe even a uh, guitarist or two. But tonight we have a very special guest on our show. And I'm delighted to have him here with us. Actually, he'll be on the phone here in a little bit. And uh, Rocktober, yes, music, man. And uh, it's nostalgic reading cars, even mm-hmm. though it's predominantly cars. But we've gotten into music because we've always done music. Actually, when I very the very first show, I played a lot of music. And then uh, That's Lee... Where it stuck. Yeah. And, uh, and Lee says, well, Robert, you know, instead of playing music, why don't you talk about cars since you know a lot about cars? So then we transitioned to cars. And then we started going to some of these concerts. And then we transitioned back to the concerts. And so one thing's back to... a Back and forth here a little bit. Plus, I play a little musical, uh, a few musical instruments. I have a little little bit of guitar, pound on the drums once in a while, and then I play the Ivories. Tickle the Ivories, as I say. I play keyboards. At any rate, so uh, without further ado, I think what we're going to do is we're going to... Not much going on in the way of uh, you know car shows and stuff like that. Other but than if the, there is, it would be on FLAcarshows.com. It would be on FLAcarshows.com, yes, where you can find out all about this stuff. But meanwhile, meantime, I still see a lot of people... Um, Cruising around? Cruising around, yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool. So uh, get out there, drive your cars, drive your motorcycles. It's going to be a cool front this weekend, so. Oh, get drop get, top get, get weather. Change it yeah. all this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, on that note, I think Tom is going to fire up the. Uh, oh, we're going to do a quick commercial. Then we're going to fire up the stereo. Then we're going to bring out a very special guest for the evening. In the meantime, everybody stay tuned. Don't touch that dial. You know that little thing here on the radio knob there? It's dirty, so don't touch it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, well, hey, you got a computer, just you can see us live here on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, all that other good stuff. Anyway, hey, you're tuning to Nostalgic Radio Cars, don't touch it now, we'll be right back.
1: a loner an outsider a fighter
2: You, johnny walker
1: a bruised heart and a battered body
2: you look like a cowboy you a cowboy he's got two lessons to learn in life i love the way you fight john i never saw anybody fight like that <laughs> hey man you got my money how to take care
1: of himself go back to where you
2: came from. Hey, fat man, nobody tells me where to go back to. And how do you care for somebody else? That Ruby, she's a good one. She's so pretty? I got an idea. I got something for us.
0: You gotta take care of yourself, Johnny.
2: You see that guy there? He deals diamonds.
1: I wanna help you. In my professional opinion, the next time somebody hits this guy in the head, he could drop dead all i need is one big score
2: let me tell you what you can't do johnny Walker. you can't fight no more This is Andy Powell, guitarist, Wishbone Ash, and you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
0: Okay, we're back, and you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and since uh, this show is uh, really about musical instruments and legends in the industry, for those of you guys out there like myself that play guitar, whether you play a six-string or a four-string, you know how important it is to have your guitar set up. And uh, the gentleman that I have coming on that I'm about to introduce in a few minutes is, or a few seconds I should say, had a very significant role and was the guitar tech for one of the most, um, let's just say, best guitarists on the planet. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Lee Dickinson. Dickson.
2: Dick, Lee, how are you? Oh,
0: man, get it right. I've been waiting since 7 o'clock. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Anyway.
2: You're thinking, the,
0: you're thinking of the singer with Iron Maiden. That's the Dickinson, I'm Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Iron Maiden. Wow, there we go. Okay. Anyway, so Lee, uh, how you been? Welcome to the show. It's a real true honor and a pleasure to have you uh, on the show this evening. And
2: well, thank you very much.
0: And you were the guitar tech for Eric Clapton for 30 years. So what yeah, 30
2: I years. yeah seems like fifty it
0: seems like fifty. So what I want to know <laughs> is how do you become guitar tech? So what did you do at the very beginning, and how did you end up uh, working with the legendary Eric Clapton himself?
2: Well, I, I migrated to London from my native Scotland, uh, so Crikey, mid seventies, I think. A lot of a lot of my friends had gone down there, and I wanted to get into to touring or doing something of that nature, you know. And uh, wh- I worked for a company that that hired equipment and did stuff, and I did. I uh, went to work for them, and amongst the clients were Eric. But I did tours with the uh, Weather Report, and like did a couple of Ramones tours, Manhattan Transfer, a real diverse selection of artists, and I was on a couple of Eric tours, and uh, as part of the staff, and. We got on well, and cut a long story short. He was in Japan in '79, and I was there, and uh, we needed someone to take care of the guitars, and I got given the gig, and I held on to that rough ride for 30 years.
0: Wow, wow! So, how so? Were you a musician at a young age? I mean, how do you when, to, to become a guitar tech? Do you have to be an actual musician, or do you how, do you have to have a real good understanding of the musical instrument yourself? And tell us tell us how that kind of how that works how that all kind of evolves
2: well i know lots of guitar techs that literally can't play a chord but they're you know they're technically very good with uh you know electronics and stuff like that and i know other guitar techs that are some are better than the guitar players they're working for you know it's (laughs) it's a real diverse selection of people uh i'd classify myself as mediocre. and I I play guitar just to, to because I write songs and I, and I have mountains of stuff that I'm looking for someone to write with and uh, I've been doing for a long time, but that was the uh, that was the impetus to get me going was you know, to interpret my songs, and of course if you're working for an artist it does help if you can play a couple of their riffs or whatever sound check line check because a lot of them don't come and do that.
0: So now, when a when musician, let's just say we're like in, in, in Eric Clapton's case, okay, mm-hmm. and uh, so when he tours, you're with him all the time, and your job is to set the guitar up, correct? It's not necessarily that you go on stage and gig the guitar or any of the equipment, but it's to basically set the guitar up so that the musician can play his or her style, correct?
2: Every guitar player is different. Every guitar player requires different things from their tech. You know, some people are te- highly involved in the set, you know, like... Uh, like, the edge the edge from U2, his uh, his tech is like, you know, almost a part of the show, you know, changing effects and doing all kinds of stuff. My job with Eric, essentially, as the guitar tech, you're there, you set up the equipment, you make sure the guitar is right for him, you make sure the action's right for him, you make sure everything's cool, that you've got spares, and you work all day towards the show, you make sure the guitar is not going to go out of tune, which is a technique in itself. Then he walks on stage, you present him with a guitar, and he takes it from there. Uh, Eric was the kind of guy that didn't like to change too often, so if, only if he busted a string would he change from the main guitar to the spare. And, uh, you know, then if we were doing a blues tour, which we did uh, a, a very, very unique tour that he did just doing blues, well, I had like maybe 22 guitars, you know, different tunings all the time, guitars for slide. Guitars to emulate this artist, uh, you know, Birdland if he was doing Elmore James, uh, 335 if he was doing any of the King stuff, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, just be there all the time. And then, uh, uh, you know, all the recording projects where, where I do everything from take care of the rest of the artists in the studio if they don't have crew, to parking the cars, feeding the meters, organizing lunch, you know, organizing visits to people, liaising, you know, m- a mountain of things really. And uh, I, there was a lot of personal assistant stuff in my uh, my tenure with Eric. You know, if we'd go to New York, to, if he was going to play, the, say, at the Beacon Theatre with the Allman Brothers, it would just be he and I. It wouldn't be all the entourage, you know, tour manager, assistant tour manager, stage manager, yada, yada. It would just be he and I. So we did a lot of stuff like that. But on tour, as I just explained, that was my gig, you know, make sure everything's working, do the line check, be right there for the band, take him guitar to the dressing room, so he can rehearse or practice beforehand, double-check everything, help the support act if we can, and then when the moment comes, the lights go down, be standing there, hand him the guitar, and off he goes.
0: So would it be fair to say that you're almost like the right-hand man for the uh, for the actual uh, entertainer himself, in this case, Eric? Well,
2: in a live situation, there's everyone counts in a live situation, but the three main people, really, were someone like Eric as the sound guy, obviously, but that's mm-hmm. got to be right. The lighting guy can't mess up, and me, uh, you know, I'm I'm what he's got on stage for everything. You know, if he has a problem, uh, we have to fix it real quick, if uh, something happens to the amp, we have to be able to switch really quickly. If something goes wrong with the radio, you have a uh, a hard wire just there to plug them back into a cord. Just you know, you have to think of all these things, and, and it's all just about that moment he walks on stage, and you you kind of you're you're kind of free in a way to concentrate just purely on the show. And all I ever did was have a giant monitor, which my ears are suffering from now. Huh. Uh, just with just with Eric in it, because I don't want to hear the rest of the band. And and we didn't use any ears, you know. Eric didn't like them, so we just used uh, you know old style stuff. And yeah, right hand man, sure, live shows because you know if you're in a, you're in Madison Square Garden, there's you know twenty thousand people staring at him, you know, and listening to him. They notice other things going on, but if a speaker goes out or a light goes out, no one really notices, you know. something happens to the artist if he can't be heard or his guitar uh, has you know an intermittent problem with the radio or something then you've got to be right on it and i did that from uh, 1979 i took over in japan and tokyo in 1979 and then he kicked me out at the end of uh, 2009
0: (laughs) wow okay um well let me ask you this okay so in eric's particular case were his guitars tricked out or anything like that, or were his guitars pretty much, uh, you know, Fender Custom Shop production style, you know, standard pickups, standard, you know, what type of weight strings did he use, uh, pots, anything unusual, or anything like that, anything special about his tune or his bridge, the nut, anything like that, or was it just, like I said, more? Eric, was,
2: Eric was very, very happy. We had a, a tremendous bunch of guys, amongst them Larry Brooks, Todd Cruz, Jay Black, uh, John Page, Mark Kendrick, uh, so, so many people, uh, and they—they they, each guy after a couple of years was given the job of, of doing the Clapton strats. So Eric was very happy with them, and apart from just maybe a couple of tweaks to the action, he was very happy to open the case. Oh, I would open the case, obviously. You know, just look at it. Say, "Yep, we're good to go." And if he did, wanted something changed, he'd tell me. That didn't apply, you know, to vintage guitars and stuff. I mean, sometimes we, you know, if we bought an old L five or we bought a you know, an old Les Paul, You know, I may mean, have to do just a couple of tweaks on it. But Eric didn't really have an interest in in uh, what kind of pots were in there, or what what the nut material was, or you know, was the was the the brink uh, was the the bridge uh, zinc or alloy or whatever. You know, it's just make sure it's right for me to play, and you, you let them go. It's like a like a pedigree racehorse, really. You know, there's all this fussing and and training and exercising and and nurturing, but once they go out on the track, and once the the guy says go, they take over that, and that's what you know guitar players of Eric's ilk do. You know, they're, they're, you just give them, turn them loose, let them go. Just make sure everything's right.
0: Now, early on, at, um, I was looking at some videos, and because I, I kind of, you know, I, I I have an interest in, in in guitars, obviously, and I like vintage guitars a lot. So back in the day, Eric, I think, played. Um, Gibsons, and I remember in particular there was one that was an SG, and I guess it was nicknamed. And it was painted kind of a really cool psychedelic color. And it was called the Fool, and uh, and then I think he played maybe once in a while. You see him with an Les Paul, but his his axe of choice, as they say in the business, is, is has always been a Strat, right?
2: Not always, no, because as you just said, in the early days, you'll never see him playing a Strat. In the very early days, you know, you know, pre uh, pre John Mail and stuff, he was playing a red Telecaster. Then he went. Uh, you know, the Les Paul was around the mail period, and and the cream stuff. Then the Fool were actually two people, I think, from Amsterdam or somewhere in Europe, who uh, who did that kind of stuff, and they were responsible for painting the Beatles. Uh, Beatles had a store in London, mm-hmm. and it was all incredibly psychedelic on the outside. I mean, it was amazing, and they were that. They 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 were collectively the Fool. Um, the SG, uh, you know, the, as you saw, if you look at the old Cream stuff, Jack was playing, I think, a six-string bass, Fender six-string bass, that was painted by the Fool, and Eric had the SG. But through the the the, the Cream period, you'll see him play Firebird. You'll see him play Les Paul's SG three three five. You know that he, he famously used at, at their farewell show, and I think it was '69 at the Royal Albert Hall. He's just wailing away on the three three five. It was only later he got into strats, and and uh, then that's what, you know, most of the, the live footage you'll see of him over the 30 years, he very rarely, uh, on a normal Eric Clapton tour set, you'd very rarely see him play Les Paul, maybe for maybe for to emphasize a tone and one song, or but it was mostly strats, you know, all the time. We
0: were talking once, and you were talking about style, okay? So Eric has a style, and it's like, I played the clip from the movie Homeboy, and uh, I think you were telling me that Eric and you went to the, the set, and I guess you, you guys were, that's how the, he was involved in and in, in, in doing some songs, some, some backing music for that particular uh, movie. And um, it's interesting because, like you said, when you listen, if you know music, guitarists have a style, and there's, without a doubt, Jimi Hendrix had his style, Clapton has his style, Um, Pete Townsend has his style. I mean, you can pick these guitarists out, and and the late um, uh, uh, Eddie Van Halen, you know, they all have a style. And you were telling me that people actually go out and spend thousands of dollars trying to have a guitar made like these particular musicians, hoping to emulate them, but it's it's all about their style. So why don't you elaborate on that a little bit?
2: Well, uh, you know, I don't know too much about your shows, Nostalgic Radio. I like Nostalgic Radio, but I don't know too much about cars. But I think you made the point when we talked the other day, you know, like you can be, a, again, I don't know too much about the thing here, but a NASCAR or a Formula One driver. Mm-hmm. And if you're a multimillionaire, you can go out and buy that same car and get yourself access to the same track but it's down entirely down to the driver, the driver being in, the, in this sense of what we're talking about, the guitar player. And the, the thing that brought it home to me, this is a great example. Many, many, many years ago, Eric used to finish his British tours in a small town called Guildford, because it was very, very close to his you know country home. And it meant that all his old aunts, uncles, friends at the pub, the local vicar, you know, hmm. everyone could come and see that show without having to travel halfway across Europe or something. And uh, one night we were doing a show, and Eric, uh, a very, very small stage, so normally I would have, at the time, Music Man was his choice of equipment. So I'd have two Music Man HD 130 heads and two open-back cabinets with JBL K120 speakers. And uh, the the second would would only be if his amp blew a fuse. I had an A-B switch, switch him onto the second setup. In this particular setting, I had to stack the cabinets and stack the amps on top because of restrictions on the stage side, so It was only a small venue. And we had tons of guest artists that would come along each year. You know, Elton would come along. George Harrison would pop in because they all lived down near the, the 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 area of Guildford. But on this particular night, Jeff came in, Jeff Beck, who is um, my favorite. And uh, and Eric said to me, they came off stage at the Encore, and he said, I'm going to bring Jeff on now, give him a guitar and sort it out. You know, and I said, yeah, okay. So I said to Jeff, I've got a 1960 Les Paul, or I've got, Brownie, you know, the uh, whatever it was, 56 uh, Sunburst Strat. He said, I'll take the Strat. So he sat with it, just with his ear to the body, just practicing for a couple of minutes. Eric introduces him. I said, Jeff, the only thing I can plug you into is Eric's spare amp and you'll come through his spare cabinet. But that's all I got. And he said, that's fine. So Jeff comes on. Eric's playing Blackie, which is like a hybrid 56-57 Strat. Jeff's playing Brownie, you know, for all intents and purposes. You can't really tell much difference between the two guitars. He's playing through the same speakers, the same amp, without adjusting the settings. And it was like black and white, A to Z, night and day. And that's when it struck me, you know, that that's the first time. It was early in my career with Eric, and that's when I do. But it's this correlation that these guys have. It's a special thing. You can be technically an incredible guitar player, you know, read charts inside out, compose. But if you don't have that thing, the soul, the emotion, then uh, you you know uh, you're not going to really interpret it right. So anyway, so they t- they both play and they're exchanging solos. I'm standing behind the stack and I'm listening to Eric playing through the bottom cabinet and Jeff playing through the top. And it was absolutely breathtaking. What you know the the difference in tone, the difference in sound, the difference in technique. And that's what I mean. The, the great guys have it. You know, Eric's just one of those guys. He's a natural. He closes his eyes and he goes off and. And he plays, there's, and so many people try and emulate him and every other great guitar player. And as I said, they go and buy all the equipment, they get to the custom shop, and I must have the same guitars clapped, it must be built by the same guy. I've got to have the same amp with the same tubes, the same settings, the same everything. They get people, what are Eric's settings? Can you tell me? Yeah, sure. Well, I don't sound like Eric. I'm not getting that sound. And that's, that's the thing. There's the, there's the buzz, right, the rub rather right there. They're never going to sound like Eric, because Eric is Eric. Jimmy Page is Jimmy Page. Jeff Beck's Jeff Beck. Steve
0: By, Steve by et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mark Knopfler's Mark Knopfler. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's funny, we almost left him out too. Let me ask you this, okay, so what is your take on, and and th- this is the, the all-time debate, it's, and, it's, and it's like this in the automotive world. Who's the greatest race car driver? Was it Sterling Moss? Was it Fangio? Was it Dan Gurney? Was it Carroll Shelby? Was it Salvadori? Well, you know, and what's the same thing, those guys had a style, they all had amazing success, successes. Well, it's like saying is Jimi Hendrix rated the the greatest guitarist? Is Eddie Van Halen? Is Eric Clapton? Is Jimmy Page? Is Jeff Beck? You know, Mark Knopfler. All these guys you're talking about, you know, just great guitarists. To me, I think they're all great, and 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 they have their own style. And so to to, to rank them is kind of seems kind of funny. I mean, it seems kind of absurd in a way, you know, because like you said, it's it's about their style.
2: It's all about the way they play. It's- I've I've told it to I've I've done lots of you know guitar, where I talk at guitar shows and I'm hired for private events and and that's the that's the thing I always try and emphasise people go how you know how can I sound like Gary how can I sound I said well you can't because I mean you can copy it and you can copy a lot of the technique and the vibrato and and the runs and the licks and and the the scale that he's playing in like a blues pentatonic scale but it's what it's this correlation between the brain the heart and the hand imagine a triangle. And once that triangle is drawn, that's it. You know, everyone's triangle is different, if you like. So Eric going out, that's why when, uh, I mean, we did a thing called the ARMS tour years ago. It's called, uh, ARMS meant action research into multiple sclerosis. Ronnie Lane, bass player from The Faces, famous English musician, was suffering from it. All the guys decided we would do a couple of shows, which turned out into a lot. And it was a multitude of great talent, you know, with uh, Charlie Watts playing drums, And the three guitar players were Paige, Beck, and Clapton. First time they played together pretty much since they were in the Yardbirds. And when they're on stage together doing their thing, you listen to Jimmy's solo, you listen to Eric's solo, you listen to Jeff's solo. Three entirely different planets in the solar system, you know, that far apart. Totally, totally different. And that's what it is. It's a correlation between, you can be, you know, it's it's not being the most... being able to read charts and write music and stuff, it's just this feeling, it's a feel thing, most of it. I mean, you have to obviously practice and learn, but once you you have that thing, then you become your own man. And, And Eric had it in spades, so does Jeff, so does Jimmy Page. But listening to the three of them on stage, again, night and day, although they may be playing the same riff or playing the same part, night and day. It's that thing I just told you, it's nothing other than brain heart and hands and everyone's
0: are different you mentioned jimmy page jeff beck and uh, eric and of course they were all basically back in the Yardbirds back in the day and uh so as we move on a little bit some of the bands out of the late 60s now one of my favorites has always been deep purple i'm a big fan of richie blackmore and uh, have you ever had any uh interaction with richie i mean and and your thoughts and he's an excellent guitarist too he's got his own style
2: my friend passed away last year, a guy called Ian Ferguson. I know this guy who was his tech for a long, long time. Richie, uh, you know, I like the purple too. You know, they're one of the kind of bands I listened to, uh, the seventies. Richie's thing was, I think he was very classical, you know, he was a, you know, very, a classical player in, in terms of just what he did with that band. And, and then he turned into that, that kind of tone, you know, the Marshall and Strat tone. Um, Richie's another one that's very, very different. You know, uh, if you listen to, say, Richie Blackmore with Deep Purple, and then you listen to Steve Morse with Deep Purple, again, night and day, mm-hmm. light years apart, different guys, different brains, different hearts, different hands.
0: And, and and you can you can feel it in the music. The music's different. And this...
2: Well, the music's different. I mean, the, you know, the, the, it's a harder rock thing, you know. You, like, to, to say if you were trying to compare Richie to Eric, it would be, wouldn't be fair, because Eric's essentially a self-confessed blues player but you know just has gone through many other genres in his career and Richie what he's doing now is incredibly different the acoustic thing with his wife but you know he was the guy at the time Richie was just the man and uh and as far as rock bands in Britain and stuff went but then for me you know uh, I mean I've listened to Eric going through so many changes in 30 years And my favorite period is always going to be Cream, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's just so unique. Um, So, yeah, Richie's great players. There's tons of great players. And that's the sad thing about every musician, not just guitar players, but drummers, keyboard players all around the world. There's guys that are just off the charts fantastic who will never, ever make it through a mixture of, you know, I don't know, have family, bad luck, job, you know, lack of ambition or whatever. Never getting the break that they deserve, and there's, you know, there's, it's not just confined to the guys that we know. There's some amazing players all over the place, you know, but they'll never ever get there. So the only point of reference we have is all the famous guys, excuse me. And uh, as I say, I've, I've managed to uh, meet all my musical heroes and, and work with them or alongside them, and it, it's just turned me on to it more and more. It's like the difference between. You know, if you look at blues, look at the difference between Freddie King, Albert King, and BB. You know, nothing, the only similarity is the last name. You know, they were just so different, and yet they were just playing blues because they had their own thing, you know.
0: Tell us a story about you, Eric, and BB uh, King. That's uh, kind of an interesting story as well.
2: Um, well. I've done a lot of things with BB over the years, who, who was, I must say, the, the kindest and most gracious, humble guy. You know, he was just wonderful. Um, A few years, well, I keep saying a few years. I've been gone from Eric Ten, but back then we did this album called "Writing with the King." We went to LA to record, and uh, BB doesn't have a guitar tech, you know, so I I assumed that role. And it was just Eric paying homage to one of his heroes and allowing him to, you know, just pretty much do what what you want to do, play what you want to do on the record. And uh, and B.B. was just such a sweetheart, you know, I mean, to, to be around him that much and listen to the stories they tell you about, you know, guys like Howlin' Wolf and Little Walter and Muddy Waters and all these cats, you know, what they used to get up to and the uh, some stuff I can't obviously say on the radio. But uh, <laughs> it was always really interesting to listen to him. And then uh, one particular thing, one night uh, the producer called me and he said, look, man, we're having a real problem with B.B.'s guitar. And I said, well, what's wrong? And what BB used to do is he'd take, as if he was using Gibson strings, he'd take the entire length of the string and he'd, he'd start, he'd poke it through the hole and he'd just keep winding and winding and winding and winding. And what happens then is the string doesn't have any, you know, continuity. It's not a nice coil finishing low on, on the string post. It was just like they were overlapping and stuff. So he'd hit some bend, and which would cause the string to slip. Not a lot, but enough to, you know, to, to ruin the track. So there was this kind of, you know, the producer said to Eric, you have to tell B.B. to leave his guitar because he wanted to take it with him every night. His his old assistant, uh, who's a wonderful character, too. Another story, another time. Uh, and, uh, you know, oh, we can't tell B.B.'s. I mean, you don't tell B.B. King, he's out of tune, you know. his going to responsibility. <laughs> so I went over to B.B. just because he finished for the day. And I said, B.B., and he sometimes called me Lee, but he was a lot of the time he would call me young man, you know. I said, B.B., is there any way you could leave Lucille with me tonight? And he said, uh, he said now, why do, you, why do you want to do that, young man? And I said, well, uh, just give it a, a clean up and uh, make sure everything's okay for tomorrow. We've got this heavy day recording. Maybe he's put a new set of strings on if he wouldn't mind. And he said to Norman, his, his, his guy, he said, give him Lucille. And I said, I'll take really good care of her. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Lee, I think she'll be happier this evening being in the arms of a younger man. <laughs> and, uh, so I obviously I, I restrung it the way I would I'd normally do it, stretch the strings in. Next day, faultless. You know, played the you know played the next five or six days in the same set of strings, absolutely faultless. Never went out of tune. Um, and you know, as I said, just with being around the man, uh, he's just such a a presence, but not in a humble way, you know, not in an egotistical way and absolute uh, absolute hero of Eric's and uh, mine, of course, and all the blues guys out there. And then we got to play with lots of other great guys. You know, the first American tour I ever did, Muddy Waters, was the opening act. You oh, know, wow. And that was a trip. You know, and then we got to do stuff with Otis Rush and uh, oh. Hubert Sumlin and all, all the legends, really, you know, John Lee Hooker.
0: That's uh, that's some amazing. Uh, that's an amazing roster. How about Buddy Guy? Now, he's a little bit more of a contemporary, but he's an excellent guitarist too. He does both blues, rock and roll.
2: Buddy's uh, another massive, massive hero of Eric's. Maybe Buddy's even bigger an influence in his style and playing than BB for sure. And but Buddy, uh, you know, is an older man now as we all are, but he was a kind of a wild card. And there was a thing we did at the Royal Albert Hall. I, I mean, I've done over 125 shows there over the years. Uh, with different, you know, mostly Eric and guesting and things like that. But we had this, uh, this amazing project we took on. I'll try and tell it to you quickly. It was called 24 Nights at the Royal Albert Hall. So the first uh, six were as a four-piece band. And while we were doing the four-piece, we were in the Royal College of Music behind the Royal Albert Hall, rehearsing the eight-piece band during the day. Then we'd come in, you know, and then while we, we were playing the shows with the eight-piece band, we'd be in the royal college of music all day with the blues band which it, it was an entirely different set of musicians which included buddy and then at the end of the blues section we went on to the full orchestra thing conducted by the great michael cayman i'll just mention him of the legend and um the first night at the at the well, eric said well let's bring on buddy last because you know we'll give him a bit of reverence so you've got like jimmy vaughn and uh, jimmy uh, jimmy lee vaughn and robert Cray and Oh wow! And Albert, Albert Collins, and Eric, and, and stuff. And the first night, uh, at the time, uh, and I hope, uh, I hope he's, he's okay with it now. But at the time, you used to like to drink Crown Royale, did Buddy? You know, <laughs> and and those Chicago guys, those old blues guys, the stories they tell you, about the showmanship, you know, trying to usurp or or or, or better your uh, the guy that you're you're guesting with, you know, uh-huh. everybody has to try and blow everyone off the stage. Well, everyone, everyone had gone down to smaller amps things like that with it being the the Royal Albert Hall but Buddy insisted on a half stack marshal and uh, I think it was a fender Basement. and Eric would you know would be three quarters the way through the set and he'd go ladies and gentlemen Buddy Guy and Buddy would come on he had that gleam in his eye you know that look and and everyone thought oh here we go and he just pulled out all the stops you know he would just come on and completely take over the first night you know playing to the audience getting off the stage playing with a drumstick on the string doing all kinds of stuff and the audience of course love it but uh for the next three nights I, I was privy to this discussion uh at the production meeting with Eric and the rest of the guys they said um, maybe we should bring Buddy on first <laughs> <laughs> you know before before he sat uh, down the bottle of Crown Royale. and he was still incredible and amazing uh, absolutely breathtaking but he's buddy's, buddy's you know c- kind of fits in the the, the Jimmy Hendrix genre of blues you know he's pretty mm-hmm. uh he's he's deep and he's heavy um Wonderful, wonderful man. Very Another very humble guy. But that glint he had in his eye, I saw the musicians look at each other that first night, and they're going, oh boy, he's drunk the crow right now. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, another guy um, that uh, I always thought was a very good, you know, it's kind of like you watch a guy on stage and you watch how they handle a strat. Now, I personally have one, too. I've got a hard tail. It's my like early 70s, and I, and I play a little Fender Mustang, and I also have an SG. And... Um, and, and and I'm more just rhythm, okay. But it's and you're right. You it's you know you can play the style, and if you plug in a wah wah and all that kind of stuff, you, you can kind of get those sounds that they had back then. But it's the style. But a guy that I always thought was really really just cool with a strat was Tony Joe White, and uh, you know he was kind of like a swamp music. I don't know if you ever ran across him or not. If you ever listened to his music, but he just had a style of his own too, and it was just kind of really cool because like Eric. When he plays, it looks so effortless. I mean, it's just so natural, fluid. I mean, he's just, just, and to me, that's what's I impressive.
2: Him, I met him once. Yeah. Um, later in his career, um, no one, no one in my circles really, you know, would talk about Tony Joe White uh, as a great guitar player, but he was. And Tony Joe White, the, the reason that I was so knocked out to meet him and just to just to shake his hand. Was he wrote one of my favourite, favourite, favourite ever songs called A Rainy Night in Georgia? No which kidding, was, which has been covered by people like Gladys Knight and people like that. But just with his voice, and this is just one of the most emotional songs you could listen to. It's incredible. Um, but Tony again was known for you know the cowboy hat, the swamp thing, you know, Pope Saladini, and all that kind of stuff. But he uh-huh. had many, many strings to his bow. You know, he wasn't just that guy, and he was a tasty player.
0: Eric, when he pl- plays now, I I like light strings. I play with nines, tens, sometimes depends on because you know, the strings kind of vary a little bit. But what type, what weight strings that uh, does Eric play with?
2: Ten to 46, 10, 13,
0: 17, 26, 36, 46. Oh wow. Um, okay, and then uh,
2: maybe maybe on the jazz guitars, like we're using an L five on the section. I'd I'd use a, a heavier set. Maybe go to elevens or something just for the for the tone.
0: Uh-huh. What uh, what type of a pick does he use?
2: Uh, a guitar pick. What? No. One of the banes of my life was the, the Eric Clapton picks, which are legendary. And now uh, we'd have them sometimes have them made three times a week, just depending on someone saying something or a funny saying or a yeah. joke. And I'd get onto Ernie Ball, who took great care of us throughout my 30 years with all the strings, never let us down in. I'd call him up on a Sunday night from the Albert Hall and go, hey man, sorry to bother you at home. Is there any way that you can get me 200 of these by, like, Monday? And you could, I could hear him go, uh, Sterling Ball, the guy who owned the company, you know, he'd go, okay, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no problem. And I'd have these picks. So Eric generally used what we would call a hard pick. hardy uh-huh. Ball, hard. Um, so a lot of the times if he was playing blues, or he was on the softer things like Tears in Heaven and stuff. He would just maybe play with his fingers on a gut string. But, um, yeah, for, for
0: most applications, uh, a standard heavy pick. Okay. Who are some of the other guys, uh, you know, well-known musicians that you uh, did some guitar tech for? I mean, and did tech, so, I mean, were these people that you actually did stuff for, or were these just kind of like they happened to be on stage with Eric, and then you just kind of helped out because you happened to be there, and it was kind of yeah, a courtesy? There was,
2: there was lots of there was lots of those, but... Uh, Eric liked a lot of vacation time, you know, And on the, the, the occasion I'd get maybe Pete Townsend's office call me up because my friend Alan Brogan, who was Pete's tech and worked for a lot of other bands, would be off doing something else and Pete's going to do these TV shows and he's on Jules Holland and he's doing this, can you take care of it? And I'd say, sure, you know, and I'd, you know, go and work for, for Pete for that week. Um, I always loved The Who, and another thing I got to do was be John Entwistle's bass tech at Madison Square Garden for like six nights while we were doing this full-on production with the backdrop of the movie of Quadrophenia, one of The Who's famous albums that Pete wrote. Um, I got a call to look after Paul Simon one day. A guy called me from New York. I thought it was a joke. He said, Paul's going to record in this studio in London with Brian Eno. He needs someone. Can you be there on Monday? And I said, sure, you know going to the studio with Paul for a few days. Uh, there's been tons of those things. I mean, those, those spring instantly to mind because they were kind of musical heroes, you know?
0: You mentioned early on that you uh, like to write music. Tell us a little bit about your writing experiences and has any of your um, songs been uh, turned into actual well-known songs and are they, are they out there that uh, well-known musicians are playing?
2: Not yet, but I'm the eternal optimist. Um, I've <laughs> never really found the right person to write with. I need a person to write with who's good with the modern idiom of recording on the computer and who's, you know, musically talented, but talented but lyrically bereft, if you know what I mean. Uh, someone, that, you know, a Lennon from Ironman or however you want to, to put it. And I've never really done anything with them. I have mountains and mountains of uh, songs, some finished, some unfinished. finished, lyrics, pages and pages, A4 pads filled up to the ceiling. But I've never met the right guy to uh, fight with, and uh, that's, that's what I'd love to do when I eventually retire, do something like that, especially if it's Also, I'd like to do voice work, because I have a, a whole bunch of different uh, things to offer in that realm. But as yet, I haven't made any inroads uh, in those two fields.
0: So now, you live in the United States now. Tell us how that came about, and why did you pick where you are?
2: Well, after Eric sacked me, I couldn't show my face in London. I had to live somewhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Um, my my wife, uh, American, she'd lived, and years, absolutely grew to detest it. It was kind, it was kind of close, not not didn't coincide, but it was. She moved back just before uh, Eric and I parted company. And when I, uh, 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 to be honest, you know, when you've been with an artist for 30 years and you've given it everything and you've never done anything wrong and you've never really broken the rules, you know, maybe played it close to the edge a couple of times, but, you know, and then they get rid of you, it's quite heartbreaking, you know, because uh, you've given so much of yourself and you made, you're responsible for making those shows perfect and everything sounding great on that album, this album. Um, so I just decided I'll, I'll get up and move to, to America. I always want to have a, a look at country music, cause I like country music, mm-hmm. some of it. And uh, I, was, I took a year off, you know, while we acclimatized over here, and my wife collected uh, a whole bunch of dogs. And uh, one day I got a call from a guy, I really love his music, Gary Allen. He's a kind of an you know, A-list country guy, yeah. he hasn't had a hit for a while. And they said, we're desperate, we're stuck. Can you come and help us? And I said, sure, you know. And the only other thing i had done in America was I'd gone and helped out the Kentucky Headhunters and our old, old friends. Uh, and that was quite a, a, a whole different thing from the, the world of Eric, you know, the international touring to, to playing in honky-tonks and bars <laughs> and, and the little rodeos. Anyway, the guy thing I went down, and, and it was in the deep end kind of right away. And You have to look after this guy, look after this guy. i like, wow. Um, But I had to adapt to it, and I really love his music, and uh, I've been doing that for eight years. Um, I was offered a lot of big tours once people knew I was in America, you know, but they were all international, and I'd spent 30 years of leaving my girlfriend, wife, family, or you want to call it behind, where I took off for six months or seven months. I was away recording for uh, four months in in Montserrat or something like that at the the Caribbean. Um, So they said to me, this is the way it works, we call it Weekend Warrior, there'll be times where we go out maybe for 10 days, but most of the time we just go out on a Thursday, we come back on a Monday, you know, and I, and I thought, well, it fitted great with the dogs, short drive down to Nashville, and that's what I've been doing, because, uh, you know, one of the things about my job uh, um, is that it really, really helps if you like the music. I mean, I've done some stuff for people whose music I really didn't like, and it was torturous uh, listening to it on the side of the stage. You know, if <laughs> you really love the music, then you're more involved in it. You know, you you know you know every cue that's coming, and and I kind of feel like that with with Gary. You know, and uh, I'm having fun with that, and as I said, just wanting to get writing and see if I can do something with my material and my voice. And, Maybe write a book is another
0: thing. You know, people always say, oh, you should "Write a book, man." When I tell them the stories, you know. Wow. Now, I, I, I we only got a minute or two left, but or a couple of minutes yet. But what I, I did, what I missed in the conversation here was at the very beginning. How did you get into uh, becoming a cu- guitar tech? I mean, what did you do like very, very before then? Were you a musician? Were you uh, did you have a guitar shop? Did you play an instrument early on? I mean, what got you into it in the first place?
2: Well, a fascination with music, a love of uh, of bands, uh, just being a, a, a young guy from Glasgow who unhappy and just want to escape into this rock and roll world of the seventies that we all hear about. You know, the madness, the insanity. My heroes were guys like Keith Moon, Keith Richards, crazy guys, you know. And so uh, I, I told you I went to London, and. Uh,
0: and what year was this? What year was this about?
2: Maybe I don't know. I can't remember. It's a long time ago. Maybe 76 or something. <laughs> Uh, a lot of things happened since then. Uh, other things that we can't talk about in the radio. Oh. But anyway, um, I, I, you know, I I got a gig, you know, and I, I was kind of sorry. My dog barking in the back.
0: That's okay. Uh,
2: I, I was working on lighting and uh, whatever they would give me to do. And that's what led me to be to tour with all these other bands on behalf of this company. Like I, I was doing Ramon's tours. I toured with Weather Report. Became really good pals with Jaco Pastorius, the, the legend. Um, then I'd be off on Manhattan Transfer. Then some British bands doing a package tour. And, and, uh, amongst the company's clients were Eric, you know. So you're around the artists, and everyone was uh, having fun in those days. And we got I was in Japan. I asked for the gig. I got it. Wow. If
0: people want to get in touch with you or follow you, um, how do they go about doing it? I mean, are you kind of like in a public limelight? Or are you kind of like uh, low-key, or how, is, how does that work for you?
2: Probably I'm much too low-key for my own good, but, uh, you know, and I'd just like this point to say thank you very much to my manager, Will Kelly, for allowing me to fit this uh, thing into our very schedule. But, um, you know, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, uh, you know, you could pass pass on any messages if you get anything positive back, but I generally don't give out my information. I've always been, you know, uh, kind of a... Private. Keep it quiet, keep it under wraps, so people... uh, you know, uh, with Eric, you know, uh, when I first joined Facebook, for instance, some of that, I was inundated with all these friend requests, and they were nearly all Clapton maniacs, Clapton fans. Lots and lots of who I was friends with, and I'm still friends with. But, you know, there's, there's, like with every act, it doesn't matter if it's Jethro Toller, Simon Garfunk, Bob Dylan, whoever, Tom Paddy, there's a certain amount of obsessive and, and crazy people that want to know this stuff got to find out. You know they've kind of uh, they just live their life through that medium, and so I tried to avoid things like that, not because uh, you know just to, to not have to deal with it anymore. And as I said, it was very hurtful the the, the divorce I call it from Eric and I. Uh, so I really don't uh, very really talk about it unless I'm doing a, a private event or I'm talking about it at a guitar show or something. And then there's just millions of stories, you know, the George Harrison tours, touring. Touring in Japan with Elton John as the keyboard player, Knopfler as the sec, guitar player, the concert for George, you know, Lenny Kravitz at the White House, doing gigs at Buckingham Palace, The wow. you know, what? the Crossroads shows, uh, just mountains of stuff I've got written down here.
0: Lee, we are out of time, up against the clock, but I'll tell you what, I truly enjoyed this. My fans enjoyed this. Everybody here in the studio enjoyed it. We are going to have you back again. I want to thank you very much. I want to thank my very special guest this evening, Lee Dixon, guitar tech, former guitar tech for Eric Clapton, and many, many, many more uh, famous, legendary musicians. Lee, again, thank you very much. I want to thank your uh, brother-in-law, Wally. Uh, it's amazing. Just met him at the car show one day. And here we are. But
2: <laughs> yeah, anyway, no, but, it's yeah, thank but, you very much, Robert. It's been a pleasure. I'd love to come back. On because uh, that that list I've, I've got of me, we didn't even touch it really
0: tonight. We will do that the next time. Lee, take care. Hey, God th-
2: bless you and your listeners. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Hey, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning into Nostalgic Waiting Room Cars. Don't forget every Tuesday night here on the Town Talk Radio Network for the most legendary names in motorsports and music and fascinating people as well. Don't forget to check us out here every Tuesday night, seven to eight p.m. In the meantime, everybody, stay safe, drive carefully, pick up a guitar, and
1: love your family. Hey, hey, hey.